Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together. I thank you for my wonderful brothers and sisters and the great fellowship that we have here, the ability to worship you and to learn more about your word and freedom. And Lord, I do pray as we finish the book of Joel that you would uh, help us to understand it, remember it, the concepts and the precepts. Also, Lord, as we begin the introduction into Proverbs, we ask that you'd give us wisdom as to how to live in this world a world that's becoming more antagonistic towards you and your ways. And uh, we do pray that you give us wisdom and understanding into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, today, uh, brothers and sisters, I hope that we can get through the book of Joel. We'll be finishing that. And then I'll be giving you a little bit of an introduction into the book of Proverbs. We'll talk about some interpretive principles when we're looking at the book of Proverbs. So let's begin, though, by looking at the final verses here in Joel. Now, let's set the scene. Remind ourselves that in Joel 3, we have this final battle where all the nations are being brought really supernaturally by God, but it's through their own evil desire. They surround Jerusalem to wipe her out. And that's, of course, where the Messiah intervenes. And the last two sessions that we did, I, I hopefully proved biblically that that is the same battle that Jesus is alluding to. Yes in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. I think the evidence is very compelling and overwhelming. So, therefore, we have both the Old and the New Testament speaking with one voice that this is indeed the final battle. So today, we're really looking at the results of it. And this is where we're going to see the blessings of Messiah's reign over the entire earth based in Jerusalem. Joel 3.18, it says, And in that day... The mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Now, dear ones, notice here, when you look at the very beginning, the mountains here are going to drip with sweet wine, and the hills are going to flow with milk. Now, what that is is a great promise, a fulfillment of a promise, that God had given all the way back to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 3, where he promised them that he was going to take them out of the land of captivity and bring them into this promised land where they would have abundance. And so turn your Bibles, if you will, to Exodus 3.8. Exodus 3.8. Please turn your Bibles there. And I want you to see in this reference how God was promising to Moses and in Israel that indeed when he brought them into the promised land, they would have this kind of abundance. Now, remember, when did the Exodus occur? Well, that's 1445 B.C. So this is 9th century. So we're looking now almost 600 years later to the very year. That would be my dating on the book of Joel, about 845 right in there. So 600 years later, you have a prophet that's now prophesying the fulfillment of these words that God gave to Moses. Exodus 3.8, he says, So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the, that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. So here, dear ones, we see that the dripping of the sweet wine shows not only is God going to provide for the Israelites, the crops that he promised, but it's going to be in abundance. So remember, what's the big issue in Joel chapter 1? They don't have abundance. Their crops have been wrecked by the locusts. 
and there was a great drought that came upon the land. But when the Messiah comes and he does for his people what they can't do for themselves, that's all going to be reversed. There's going to be great abundance and their crops are going to indeed be restored. Yeah, Brian's got something. The, uh, the spring that it refers to, would that be the uh, equivalent of the river in the millennial kingdom? Exactly. I think you're exactly right. Very good. You get free coffee. <laughs> you already got yours. <laughs> no, it's very good. I think you're exactly right. I think that's the spring of life. And in fact, we'll look at some references to that. Very good. Yeah, exactly right. Now, I also want you to notice here this reference. Let me pull up my pointer just so I can show you. You've got to be careful how you pronounce this one. Um, this is actually shatim. The em, it's an em ending in Hebrew. And what that is, it's really the valley of acacias in Hebrew. The valley of acacia trees, right? Now, why is that important? Because I think it's a reference to the Kidron Valley. So remember, the Kidron Valley was mentioned earlier as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. That's chapter 3, verse 12. It's also called the Valley of Decision because God there makes an irrevocable decision to judge his enemies, Joel 3, 14. But now he's referring, it to, he's referring to it as the Valley of Shittim, the Valley of Acacia Trees. Now, why is that? Well, for those of you that have been to Israel or for those of you that have read about it, of course, around Jerusalem, it's fairly arid. It's fairly dry. And these acacia trees are good at surviving in arid lands. And so they, they grow. They're about the only thing that grows well in the Kidron Valley. But what's being promised here is that no longer is it going to be just a valley of trees that are acacia trees, but instead there's going to be this great abundance of crops. Why? Because the waters from the Messiah are going to bring fertility to the land. Yes, it's real, and it's also symbolic, the river that flows from Jerusalem. And so that's exactly what Brian had just mentioned. In the millennial kingdom, as the Messiah reigns from Jerusalem, there's going to be living waters that flow from Jerusalem. And it's not just symbolic, it's literal, but it also symbolizes the life that comes from the throne of God in Jerusalem. Now, let's look at some of that evidence here. Let me put up uh, the Zechariah 14.8. I think this is a cross-reference. Zechariah 14.8, talking about, again, the time the Messiah comes and fights against the enemy surrounding Jerusalem. It says, In that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. So there you have the living waters that will flow, and I think that's what's being alluded to here, really, in Joel 3, that brings this abundance. Notice the reference, all the brooks of Judah will flow with water as well, and a spring will go forth from the house of Yahweh. What a great reference. I think that's exactly what Zechariah is referring to. Now, there's one more passage I want you to have in your mind. Do you remember in Ezekiel, in the chapters, really... 38 on, you have this restoration of Israel. And in chapter 47, the promise is one day the Messiah, it doesn't say it's the Lord, the Lord himself is going to dwell in the temple. So the glory of God that left in Ezekiel 10, he comes back. So put that in your mind. When did the glory of Yahweh leave the temple last? Is when Jesus left the temple. 
Remember, he says, I leave to you at desolate, and you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Well, Ezekiel 47 is about his return. And in Ezekiel 47, you have this reference to these living waters that flow from Jerusalem. And again, the waters will go to the Mediterranean, to the west, but to the east, they're going to bring life to the Dead Sea. So the Dead Sea right now that's dead as a doornail, doesn't have any life in it, it's going to be teeming with fish. That's a great promise. Now, one thing I want to remind you, that proves to us, I believe, the millennial kingdom exists. Let me explain why. If you remember, when you get to Revelation chapter 21, remember John says, and there was no more sea. Okay, now, do we have a sea today? Yes. So we have seas today. So in the church age, we have seas, but the Dead Sea doesn't have life. In the eternal states, the Dead Sea isn't going to bring forth life because there's not going to be any sea. So if you don't have it happening in the church age and it's not in the eternal states, when does the Dead Sea bring forth life? Well, it has to be in this millennial kingdom. It's not the eternal states and it's not the church age. Are you, are you with me? So that's one of the evidences to give to the amillennialist who says, ah, this, this millennial kingdom brought up by these dispensationalists, it's, it's not there. They're just reading into the Bible too literally. No, I, I think it's exactly the way the Bible describes it. And so that's what's being described here in Joel chapter 3. When the Messiah reigns, there's going to be life. Uh, think about in John chapter 7. Remember Jesus is teaching at the Feast of Tabernacles? What were the Jews celebrating at the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, they were celebrating how God had tabernacled with them in the wilderness and he had provided for them. What are some of the things that they needed in the wilderness? Well, one of the biggies is they needed water. So that's why, remember, every day of that feast, as they would celebrate it in Jerusalem, you would have the high priest bring a procession from the pool of Siloam, they would take a golden flagon. It was just filled with water. And they would bring that in procession to the temple and they would pour it out. And it symbolized two things. One day God would pour out his spirit. But also one day Messiah would reign and there would be living waters that would flow. Well, notice here, turn your Bibles to John seven thirty-seven through 38. Listen to how Jesus appropriates that Feast of Tabernacles to himself invites people to come to faith and then says this is all fulfilled in him. And this is what we're reading about again in Joel 3. So make the connection. Joel 3 and John 7. Notice John 7, 37 through 38. It says, now on the last day, so this would either, there's some discrepancy whether that was day 7 or day 8. There's, there's a debate and we don't have to solve that here. But it, whatever day it was, it was the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It says, now in the last day of the, great, of the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, stop there. Notice the term drink. You might say, well, what does it mean to drink? Well, notice how he describes what it means in verse 38. He says, He who believes in me... As the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So Jesus there is giving an invitation. That's what we call the general call or the universal call. Remember, there's the universal call. It goes out to every person. 
But because we're all unregenerate dead sinners, nobody will respond. That's where the effectual call. But there really is an invitation. Anyone who's thirsty can come to Jesus and drink. And what does he mean by that? It means believing in him. Just as he talked about in John chapter 6, if you eat his blood and you, or excuse me, drink his blood and you eat of his flesh. And he explains what that means. That means believing in him, partaking in the Messiah. And if you'll trust in him, you'll have waters that are living within you. But all of that is looking forward to the day where, as we see in Joel 3.18, Zechariah 14.8, the living waters will flow from the Messiah as he reigns in Jerusalem. Again, not just figurative or symbolic, but literal as well. All right, now, let's keep moving on. Let's see here what we see in verses 19 through 21. It says, Egypt will become a waste and Edom will become a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever in Jerusalem for all generations, and I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Dear ones, isn't it fitting that the last words of this magnificent book is Yahweh dwells in Zion? One of the things I love about that is, think about Joel. Remember what his name means. Joel's name means Yahweh is God. And as Yahweh is God is writing this because the Israelites are going after false gods, the last words from this man whose name is Yahweh is God is Yahweh dwells in Zion. That's the great promise. First of all, though, notice some interesting things. Notice here, Egypt will become a waste and Edom will become a desolate wilderness. Now, why pick on Egypt and why pick on the Edomites? Well, they were oftentimes seen as the prototypical enemies of God. But I think this also shows us that this book should be dated to the ninth century. Now, here's why. If, in fact, this book should be dated to the centuries like the sixth century or the seventh century, the powers that were dominant at the time would be Assyria and, of course, later Babylon. But those aren't the nations that were troubling Israel in the ninth century. That was primarily Egypt and Edom. Okay, so again, that's further corroboration that, in fact, this book should be dated very early to the ninth century. Now, I want you to notice here the great promise where he says, but Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem for all Generations. That's talking about this time of the millennial kingdom where the Messiah reigns with his people for a thousand years. And of course, after that, the people of God, all those who believed in Messiah, who believe in Christ, are going to have the eternal states. Now, I also want you to see that this fulfillment is found in the fact that the Messiah is going to be reigning and dwelling from his throne. So when it talks about Yahweh dwelling in Zion, Yahweh is the Messiah. Remember, Jesus himself says in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. He declares himself to be Yahweh. So that's who's going to be dwelling there. Remember the verb there for dwell, shekan in Hebrew? That's where we get our term shekinah glory, the dwelling presence of God. So again, Ezekiel chapter 10, because of the idolatry of Israel, the Shekinah glory of God left the temple. Where does he leave? He goes up from the Mount of Olives. 
Fast forward to the New Testament, Matthew 23. Because of the idolatry of Israel, the glory of God, Jesus, leaves the temple. Where does he ascend from later? From the Mount of Olives. You see the same pattern. But here the great promise is he's returned and he's going to dwell with his people forevermore. Yeah, Brian. <clears throat> well, I hope this isn't a goofy question. No, no. But um, I, I'll probably I wanna, have a goofy I want to clarify, but Judah will be inhabited forever. Okay, and, and then it's referring to the millennial kingdom. Absolutely. But then what about when, like, forever is forever. Yeah. And, and what about the new Jerusalem? So is the new Jerusalem and Judah, can you interchange those terms? Or Yeah, very good saying? question. Yeah, I, um, remember when we read in Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem comes down. And so, you know, whether you have the supplanting of the old one completely or you have, in a sense, too, the point is the people of God are going to have this heavenly city come down and we're given the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. That's what we know. And so what we had that was marred by sin is going to be completely restored. And so remember, though, even in uh, the eternal states, the nations come. And the implication is the believers. Now, there's no unbeliever that will ever partake or enter into the new Jerusalem, ever. That's only for the believer. But there's still going to be nations. And so the implication is there's still going to be Israel and the Goyim, the nations. But now they're going to be all regenerate. And so if you think about it, what's exciting to me is, of course, we're excited about the millennial kingdom. And one of the reasons I think we are is because that's accessible. We know what it's like to live here. But realize, in the eternal states, we still have here, but it's going to be restored. So we have the new heavens, the new earth. We still have an earth. And the new Jerusalem is our stomping grounds. Can you imagine what it's going to be like to be in the city of God that's illuminated by his glory? You see where it says dwells, Shekan. The Shekinah glory of God, that's what's going to illuminate the new Jerusalem and all of the universe. Well, I, let me just, the, the, the known, what we can see. That's what the book of Revelation says. It's going to be illuminated by his glory. Wow. So instead of waking up every day and seeing the sun, S-U-N, and you see everything in light of the S-U-N, you're going to see everything in light of the S-O-N, the light of the sun, the Messiah, the glory of God dwelling. That's the great promise. I'm sorry, Bob's got something. Your mic. Yes. How does the, all the elements melting with a fervent heat fit into this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If everything is destroyed. Destroyed in that way. Yep. Then... It's got to be a total recreation. How's that work? Yeah, I think, I think you're right, Bob. Uh, the second, Bob's referring to like 2 Peter 3.10 where the elements are going to be destroyed. And so when God recreates, he does, he does get rid of the old earth. The old heavens, the old earth have passed away. Behold, I make all things new. And so what that looks like and how he does it, I, I can't tell you. Just as he spoke the initial creation into being, he has the power to speak the old one out and bring the new one in. But the beautiful thing is because he's with us, you're never going to be harmed. So don't think that the burning up of the, uh, the earth or something is going to affect you. You know you're with him. And because he's the life-giving God and because you belong to him, you're forever secure. That's the beautiful thing. But the encouraging thing, too, is you have a lot of stomping grounds to play in. New heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, that's the great promise. But here... Brian, um, this is the promise that he's making for the people of Israel. It all obviously extends to us, but it's really related to this kingdom that was given to David. So that's the concern that Joel has is, wait, what about this kingdom that 150 years earlier 
was promised to be given to David. Okay, now what I want you to see is that this promise given to David that the Messiah will reign, the greater David, it's not just something we see in just a few passages, it's all over the place. Psalm 89, 2 Samuel 7, uh, 14 through 16, and really the whole chapter, it's all over the place. But turn to another reference, turn to Ezekiel 34, if you will. I want you to see this promise that happened, oh, 450 years after David was off the scene of history. Ezekiel 34, verses 22 through 24. And this is the great promise where God reestablishes the good shepherd instead of the wicked shepherds that had led the people astray. Ezekiel 34, 22 through 24. Notice it says, Therefore, this is the Lord's promise, I will deliver my flock, and they will no longer be a, a prey, and I will judge between one sheep and another. Verse 23 says, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. Now stop there. How long has David been off the scene of history? This is written 570-ish B.C. Well, David's been gone for 430 years. So how would the Israelite have understood what Ezekiel was saying? They knew that that was the promised Messiah that would come from the lineage of David. Remember in 2 Samuel 7, when the promise was given to David, David knew. He says that you have spoken concerning your servant regarding the distant future. He knew that it wouldn't be fulfilled in Solomon. Not that Solomon isn't important. He's part of the seed of David. But ultimately it was going to be applied to the Messiah. The Israelites knew that. So they knew that this this is a messianic passage. Now let's keep reading. Oops, I lost my place. There we are. Verse 24. It says, And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. There you go. So the Lord has spoken. That his Messiah, the greater David, is going to reign. That's exactly what we're seeing here when it says, The Lord dwells in Zion. That's the greater David. That's the equation that I want you to see. Okay, now let me show you another reference. Turn uh, to Ezekiel 43.7. This will be our last one here in Ezekiel. But I just wanted you to see that Ezekiel says a lot about this reign of the Messiah in Jerusalem. Ezekiel 43.7. Now, Ezekiel 43 is about the filling of the temple with the glory of God. Remember, Ezekiel 10, it leaves the glory of God. Ezekiel 43, it comes back. Why? Because the Messiah is reigning. He's come back at a second advent. That's exactly what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 24 at the end of the 70th week. Ezekiel 43, 7. He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet. Now stop there. What are the, what's the place of the soles of his feet? Jerusalem and specifically the temple. Then he says, Where I will dwell, there Shechan, among the sons of Israel for how long? Forever. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their idolatry and by the corpses of their kings when they die. So notice he says in that beautiful promise, I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. That's exactly what Joel 3.18 is saying as well. Now, with that, dear ones, we've come to the end of our studies in Joel. So what I want to do with you for the next few minutes, and I want to get into our introduction to Proverbs, but I want to 
I thought of a way of trying to help you keep Joel in your minds so that as you're going about your daily life, that you'll be able to remember what Joel is about. And so I thought of a way to just keep it simple. Just think about Joel is really simple in the sense because it only has three chapters. And each chapter is about a different manifestation of the day of the Lord. So when you leave today, I want you to remember that Joel is all about the day of the Lord. Why was it important that the day of the Lord came? Because the people were in idolatry. So think of it this way. Joel, when we do our, in our minds, we want to put it in our file cabinet. When was Joel written? More than likely, ninth century. Why was Joel writing it? Because of idolatry. What was God's remedy? The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is where God judges his enemies and he saves his people. When the day of the Lord comes, if you're not found in faith, judgment comes. The day of the Lord is designed to bring people to repentance and faith. So Joel is the simple. Joel chapter 1, the first manifestation of the day of the Lord was the locust plague in Joel's day, the near term. And if the people didn't repent from the the locusts taking away their crops, what did God promise that he would send which would be a further manifestation of the day of the Lord? The northern armies. That's Joel chapter 2. So Joel chapter 1, locusts, you don't respond, you get the northern armies, Joel chapter 2. Right? Joel chapter 3 is about the future battle surrounding Jerusalem where God will wipe out all of the enemies of Israel in the future day of the Lord. Chapter 1, locusts. Chapter 2, northern armies, Assyria and Babylon. Joel chapter 3, the enemies surround Jerusalem, all nations still in our future. It's that simple. Now, there's two bridge passages that I want you to remember. Joel chapter 2 has a promise of restoration of the water. In fact, let me just give you the reference. It's Joel chapter 2, and it's verses 18 through 27. So just keep in your mind, you don't have to memorize necessarily the verses, but keep in your mind, Joel chapter 2, 18 through 27, there's a promise of water that's going to restore the crops. But is that all the Israelites really need is their crops back? I suppose if you're starving, that's probably what you think, right? Just give me my food, thank you. But Joel chapter 2, 28 through 31 is the promise of sending the Spirit. Both of those promises have to do with restoration. The near term, Joel 2, 17 through 27, that's all about restoring the crops. But that foreshadows the greater pouring out, not just of water, but the Spirit, which will bring people to messianic salvation. Joel 2, 28 through 31. So again, three chapters. Chapter 1. Locust plague, chapter 2, northern armies, if you don't repent, Assyrian Babylon. But the promise is, if you do repent, I'm sending rain upon your crops. And whether you like it or not, one day I'm sending the Spirit, who's going to bring you to messianic salvation. That leads to Joel chapter 3, where all the enemies will be brought. And this time, they're not going to succeed like the locusts succeeded, and like the northern army succeeded. This time, the Messiah intervenes. And he wipes out his enemies, and he dwells in Zion forever. It's that simple.
Three chapters, locusts, northern army, the ultimate armies, all the nations surrounding Jerusalem. Those are things you can keep in your mind. And so now you can file Joel away as this prophet that you understand. Just keep it simple. Three chapters, locusts, northern army, and the ultimate enemies that surround Jerusalem at the end of time. You've got Joel. Now, for details, you can study it further. But you've got the details in your mind, and you can pull on that book. And you've made the connections now between the Olivet Discourse and Joel chapter 3. You've seen how Peter used the Pentecost passages in Joel chapter 2 and how he understood that the pouring out of the Spirit had happened at the day of Pentecost. Okay, so you can put all those things together in your mind. Yes, Linda, we got a question from Linda. We'll get you a microphone here. So I have a question kind of with this verse about pouring out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Yeah. And I kind of got sort of in an argument with a coworker about, because I was trying to tell her to stop listening to all the people out there with all their visions. Yeah, yeah, good. And everything, and yet then she's yelling back at me, this verse. Yes. And then I just, <laughs> I didn't even know what, so anyway, it's kind of the end of that, arc, that conversation. But yeah, this is for later or I mean like I like how to have responded to that yeah no very good question so the promise in Joel with all flesh the significance of that isn't again every human being without exception but all people without distinction meaning it's Jew and Gentile now put your mind in the, the, the take kind of the mindset of the Jew that lived in the ninth century salvation was only of Yahweh it was only of Israel the nations the goyim they were really looked down upon. So much so that if you were in their land and you left there and you went back into Israel, you'd take your shoe off and you'd, you'd dust the sand off because you don't want anything left of the pagans on your foot. That's what they thought. So here the great promise is that God's spirit is going to come upon not just the Jews, but all mankind. It's all flesh. That doesn't mean every human being because then you'd have universalism. Okay? Because remember, what does the spirit do? He confesses Christ. No one can say Jesus Lord except by the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. But the great fulfillment that Joel is alluding to is found in the book of Numbers. Remember in Numbers 11, I believe, where you have the 70 elders who were prophesying, and the Lord, remember, he sends them to help Moses. And they end up prophesying in the camp, but there was those two rascals, Medad and Eldad, that never made it into the camp. Well, they see them prophesying, and it's okay, they're prophesying because the Lord sent his Spirit. But remember, the text is very careful to say, and they never did it again. So this is a one-day event. And they did it so that God was showing that these men were also under the authority of Moses and therefore spoke for God. In other words, they were, in the, they were commissioned as deputies of Moses. But remember, Joshua says, Moses forbid these two for prophesying. Because he's jealous for Moses. Moses alone speaks for God. And Moses says, remember, are you jealous for my sake? And then he says, oh, that one day all of God's people would prophesy. In other words, the spirit won't be limited merely to the authoritative prophet and the mediator, the covenant, Moses. But in fact, the spirit would indwell all of God's people, enabling them to prophesy. Not in the sense of giving new binding revelation, but in the sense of understanding, disseminating, and to be able to proclaim messianic salvation. 
Um, Bob did a great article. What was that article? Um, I think it was issue 95. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Isn't that funny? He's like a machine. Uh, number 95. I, I love it. it. Well, we've been talking about it. Yes. Um, the, the I'm sorry, this is for you. This is a good one to read. The apostles and prophets, what they get wrong is they think that you can give new revelation and it doesn't even have to all be accurate. Right. Here, here comes, I'm going to say it into the mic. Yes, thanks, Bob. We've been talking about this on some of our uh, CIC podcasts, uh, that series of John the Baptist and Prophets and Asians. Yeah. Um, the prophesying that happened at Pentecost, because it was announced as a fulfillment yes. of Joel. Amen. And they, what were they speaking? The mighty deeds of God. What was God doing? He was bringing salvation through Messiah. And in 1 Corinthians 14, yes. if you all prophesy... If an unbeliever comes in, yeah. he'll fall on his face. Now, this would be a best-case scenario. Right. So the, the universal call becomes the internal call. It says God is among you. Right. Okay. But that prophesy, prophecy has to be judged that it's accurate. It comes right from Scripture. That's right. Okay. So uh, Luther, at the time of the Reformation, brought this material up to rebuke Rome. Yeah, because Rome says the Pope and the teaching magisterium and our authorities are the only ones that have a right to speak forth for God. They kept that for themselves, and then they did it falsely. That's right. So Luther uh, asserted the priesthood of every believer, and he went back to the Joel passage and the Acts passage, That's right. and says that the ordinary believer can speak, and if he does so according to the true gospel, even the Pope has to be silent in the church. I love that. That the others sit by and be silent. Right. So the authority of Scripture, the priesthood of every believer, and the prophetic calling of every believer are important. But it doesn't mean having secret powerful new revelations that nobody else had Amen. because that's a false prophet because we are uh, have to stay within the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints uh, don't go beyond what is written okay so in the case of Moses they weren't falsely prophesying exactly they weren't the new Moseses because in that same sense Eric when people wanted to do that. That's right. Korah's rebellion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, why should Moses speak for God? Exactly. They perished. Then they were judged and perished. That's so these right. people were prophesying correctly under Moses. So the people in the Acts were speaking by the Spirit about the mighty deeds of God. That's right. And it was for all these different kind of peoples. Yes. And it was about missing salvation. So the conclusion, which we had in that article, is that the most powerful prophesying anyone can do is preaching the gospel. Amen. Amen. And what's so good about that article, again, um, it's volume 95. Bob shows that there's a difference between prophecy in the sense of a prophet who gives us new revelation and prophecy in a functional sense. 
in which we are using implications and applications that come from the prophets and apostles. And let me, let me just prove that that's the case from what Bob was mentioning. And turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14.31. This is what, it's all in Bob's article. 1 Corinthians 14.31. Notice here, this is the functional sense of prophesying that Bob is writing about in this article. Paul says this to the Corinthians. He says, for you can all prophesy one by one. Now, stop there for just a moment. The debate in the text, just to let you know, is when he says, for you may all prophesy one by one, is the all all the prophets? Or is it really all believers in the congregation? Implication, all Christians. I think it's the latter. Now, let me just exegetically prove my case. Read it again. Read it in the very beginning. It says, for you can all prophesy one by one. Now, notice there's the Hena clause. So that, here's the purpose or the result so that all may learn and all may be encouraged and the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So notice that all may learn and all may be encouraged. Is it just only all the prophets that can learn and only all the prophets of the church that may be encouraged? No, I think clearly it's all believers. And so that means that the prophecy that's being alluded to isn't giving new revelation that, that comes only through the apostles and prophets, but rather, this is prophesying in a functional sense. Giving, you're, you're doing that this morning. When you're giving implications and applications of Scripture, you're prophesying. That's why Bob, years ago, um, you're still downtown, started the Sunday school to be like this. We have the microphone we pass around. We're prophesying. You may all prophesy one by one. And what do we do? We judge it. Now, do I sit in judgment of Isaiah's words? No. no. But... Can you sit in judgment of my word? Oh, absolutely. Say, hey, that doesn't line up with Scripture. What are you talking about, you rascal? Right? Yes, we can do that. We can prophesy. Um, When we gave, remember, Bob, we were up in Canada. We were talking about the solas of the Reformation. Bob had um, uh, the... uh, Priesthood of every believer. Priesthood of every believer, yeah. I had Scripture alone. Scripture alone, sola scriptura, yeah. Volume. I talk about priesthood of every believer. Yes. They didn't like that so much. Right. And the significance, Bob, okay, so he's doing uh, sola fide. Or no, it was scripture alone. Sola scriptura. That's what it was. I don't know why I can't remember that. Sola scriptura. He did scripture alone. But one of the things he taught on was the priesthood of every believer. Now, why is the priesthood of every believer essential to having scripture alone? Because what Rome was saying is, yeah, you've got a Bible but we're the only ones who can tell you what it says. What 1 Corinthians 14 is saying, that you may all prophesy, is not that you're coming up with new revelation, but you can determine for yourself, we all judge to make sure it's accurate, but the point is you can determine for yourself what it says. You don't need the Pope or the magisterium, that you're a priest, and it's not just the priesthood of the Roman Catholic Church. That's, and so what Bob is saying is you don't have Scripture alone unless you have the priesthood of every believer. That's what I thought was so magnificent about the message. So, and people can find that, can't they, that message? Um, I don't know if we have it, but yeah. those people were all creedalists. Right, who didn't like that. They didn't like it. <laughs> they, nobody said one word. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Right. But they, they wanted to say, well, we can't go beyond the Westminster Confession. Right. And so I'm, I'm preparing to write an article to rebuke that idea. Yeah. Because they're, now that they're empowered... They want to be like the Pope, only they have a little better doctrine. Right, right. But they want to take away the priesthood of every believer. Yeah, so they're just substituting the... They're going against the Reformation. Exactly. They claim to believe. 
and I'm going to write an article, I've got the research done, on a book called The Creedal Imperative, yeah. that I consider an abusive book. Absolutely. It's taking away the priesthood of every believer, which the guy never mentions. Right, right. Oh, we forgot about that. We <laughs> didn't even know about it. Yeah. Just go to one of these creedalist church where they command you to take an oath in disobedience to Jesus, yeah. to solemn oath to uphold their creed, and you say, no, I won't take an oath because the Bible forbids that, and then say, well, here's the aspect of your creed, which, by the way, replaces Israel. Exactly. Replacement theology is false. Oh, then you've got to get out of the church. We reject you. Yeah. Leave. You're gone. Right. So you're not judged by Scripture alone. You're judged by the creed. The creed is the new pope. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm going to write about that. And yeah. So if I had any friends left. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll still be your friends, Bob. So, yeah, Brian. Uh, I just want to reiterate, it, it, Bob and Jessica in that uh, uh, John the Baptist series, uh, highly recommended. And, and he really digs deep into that at the end of episode three and four. So if you wanted to zero in on that, okay, uh, then uh, that would be... Uh, a good place Thank to uh, to go. He covers Very everything good. he just uh, said more uh, uh, in depth. But yeah. also I want to say that when you say when we pass the microphone around and in in uh, we're prophesying, yeah. we should we're blessed in the sense that a lot of places you don't have that opportunity Amen. to question the, the, the person that is uh, uh, giving God's word, if you will. Yeah, no, that's so. right. That's right. And it should be done. It's something that we're, we're commanded to do in Scripture. Absolutely. Um, Linda, does that help? Um, go ahead and we'll come back to you. Did you make verse 31, Oh, did I say, um, what, uh, my eyes are kind of failing. I'm sorry. Uh, did I say verse? You said Your eyes are fine. You just be a reader. Yeah, I know. If I hold it far away, there I can see it. 30, um, am I in the wrong verse? I think you mean thirty. You mean thirty-one, don't you? You said yes. twenty-one. Yes. Did I say twenty-one? You said 21. I meant thirty-one. Okay. I'm okay. sorry. First Corinthians fourteen thirty-one. Yep. So if everyone sees that, but you can all prophesy one by one. Yep. So that and there's the Hena clause. So that all may. So um, Linda, again, back to the prophecy. Well, Go ahead. I guess I'm still not really sure, like how to have responded to her when she said that to me. Yeah. Because I think the thing. For me, well, maybe it's all part of if you have ears to hear, because I remember a while ago you talked about, do we rewrite the Bible? Right. You know, and that really struck with me. I'm like, oh, yeah, we're not rewriting the Bible. You know, and so I said that to her, and she did not like me saying that. And that's when I got back, well, the Spirit pouring out. So obviously what everybody is saying with, like, all their prophecies of what's going to be happening with Trump or whatever and all that, you know, we should be all listening to all these pastors and everything that are posting stuff. And I was trying to say, we should not be listening to all of that because we need to just look at what the Bible is telling us. That's right. But then she's telling, she's yelling at me <laughs> about, well, the spirit is being poured out on all of them. So obviously what they're saying is credible. Sure. So let me, let me try to make that distinction again between the office of prophet and the functional use usage or functional prophesying. A good passage to reply to to make that distinction is the Ephesians 2.20 that, that Bob had taught us not long ago about. Remember the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus being the, the chief cornerstone? 
The reason that's significant is the analogy that Paul is using, the imagery, is that there's a building that's been built and the foundation's been laid once and for all is the implication. You don't have multiple foundations, you only have one. And what is that foundation? It's apostles and prophets. And then Christ is the one who holds that foundation together, the chief cornerstone. So just as the building now is being built, that foundation has been laid once and for all. So in that sense, we only had prophets back in the first century. These were men who were under apostolic authority. An example of a prophet would be like Luke. Luke wrote scripture. He was inspired by the Spirit, and he was under the apostolic authority, for example, of Paul. Uh, Matthew wrote gospel, and he was an apostle. He was one of the twelve. Mark was a prophet who wrote scripture. He was under the authority of Peter, an apostle. So that's why I notice in Ephesians 2.20, the word order is important. It doesn't say prophets and apostles. That would imply the prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles of the New. Apostles and prophets, that word order shows us that it's the apostles and prophets of the New Testament. Does that make sense? So the prophets are always under the authority of the apostles who gave us scripture. Those are no longer with us. But in 1 Corinthians 14.31, what Paul's advocating is this functional use of prophesying where implications and applications of Scripture are given would be the idea because it can be judged. Each is to be judged. A good way of thinking about that, I, I, I don't know if this is a... Maybe I shouldn't even use this anymore in, in light of our political realm, but um, I have a carry permit to carry a pistol, and you, you wrestle with the legalities of that. I'm not going around trying to arrest anyone. If you have any trouble, don't call me. Call the police. My only use of it is if in an emergency situation, if, if the police aren't on hand, I can be deputized just for that moment to restrain evil. Okay, does that make sense? It's a functional use of, of the police badge. But I'm not, a, I'm not a police officer. I'm not to be called. Does that make sense? So I'm not uh, restraining evil as the police officer does but I'm restraining in that instant. In the same way, you and I are not prophets who give, us, give people new revelation, but we are called to give the implications and applications in a functional sense of what they did give. I think that may help give an answer. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, uh, I think what confuses us is just a matter of language of translating from the Greek to the English. Yeah, that's right. In the Greek, the prophesying one would be the one who prophesies in the church or could also synonymously be called prophet. But in English, we tend to reserve that word for an office. That's right. In other words, so English readers think prophet, that's always Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Agabus, something like that. But literally in that context, it's simply a noun way of saying the one who does the prophesying. Yeah. But the context determines the difference. But the confusion comes. So they confuse that. And then they create this whole scenario. But, you know, if you go back to Moses, yes. the people that he didn't restrain were not prophesying contrary to what was already given to Moses. Right. Or he would have stopped them. That's right. Because they had people who did that. They fell right into hell. That's right. Korah. Korah's rebellion. Yeah, it was not good. Yeah, that's okay? right. Okay. So... The fact that Moses said what it all were prophets showed that they were speaking forth truth that yes. was already 
in keeping with what was given by Moses. Amen. Amen. So, in the, so in that sense, it was valid. In the sense of Acts 2, they were proclaiming the mighty deeds of God in the context of what God had done through Messiah. Okay? Now, in 1 Corinthians 14, yeah. they're speaking forth under the apostles and prophets who gave us the new covenant revelation yeah. under, uh, through Messiah and his apostles and prophets. They're doing the same sort of thing as happened back then. They weren't rivals. They weren't adding to. That's right. In other words, those people in Moses' day weren't somehow giving prophecy that would never happen under the old covenant. They were within it. So the Apostles of Prophets movement is bogus. Yeah. They're creating a whole new thing that very much is like Rome. Rather than the Pope and the teaching ministerium, they have these C. Peter Wagner, who's no longer in the scene of history, but they get together and they declare each other apostles of prophets. How do you know your apostle? The prophets told me. <laughs> How do you know you're a prophet? The apostles told me. <laughs> I wrote an article on that called $1,500 Cat. Uh, the farmer said, uh, hey, uh, I used to have a $3,000 dog. Yeah. I mean, this is back in the 60s. Right, I heard right. a story. $3,000 dog. Now that maybe they were out there. I don't know. Well, how did you, how that happen? He said, well, I traded to the neighbor for his two $1,500 cats. <laughs> well, see, it's self-referential. That's right. Yeah. Um, Linda, one, one other thing about Pentecost. The, the big issue, of course, is the Spirit's going to bring people to Messianic salvation. And that's one of the things we see in John 14 and 15. When the, the Comforter comes, he's going to bring to mind what Christ had said is going to bring about the confession of Christ. And so that's why, remember the very first Pentecost that happens? In Exodus 32, you read the giving of the law. So remember, the Pentecost is just 50 days after the Feast of Passover. The very first one happens there at Mount Sinai, the giving of the law. Well, remember what happens? How many die because of the golden calf? 3,000? Well, remember in Acts 2.41, how many people come to life? 3,000. So what the law killed, the Spirit made alive. Why? Because people could really believe. God circumcised their heart. He enabled them. The other thing that's interesting, and I take this with a little bit of a grain of salt because we don't see a New Testament commentator make this connection, but it's always intrigued me, and I'm thinking about this because next week I'll be talking, I'll start that series on Babylon. Remember at the Tower of Babel, when mankind comes together by their efforts, they lose their ability to communicate the languages but isn't it interesting, by God's spirit, at Pentecost, all these people are from different nationalities, and yet they can understand one another supernaturally. So in a sense, what God took at Babylon because of human works, by his spirit, he gives back. And I, I, again, there's no New Testament commentator that makes that connection, so you want to take that a little loosely. But the, 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 the grand point is, by God's spirit, he enables human beings to do what we can't do on our own. The big issue is to come to faith in Christ. What's interesting is the Messianic age... To Paul and the apostles, we often think Christ came, that's it. But to them, the sine qua non, the essential ingredient without which you can't have the Messianic age or the new covenant age, is the sending of the Spirit. Because no one can believe Jesus except by the Spirit. No one can confess that he's Lord. So that's the big issue. To try to take that text that's that great promise and to make it into the fact that we all give divine revelation is simply not Luke's point. 
So, but anyway, that acts, the, uh, excuse me, the Ephesians 2.20 is a good place to start because that really shows that uh, we, the prophets, as Bob was mentioning, that have the office, they're, they've been delivered once and for all. Connect that to Jude 3. Jude 3, we contend for the faith once and for all handed down to the saints. If you had a constant group of apostles and prophets, you would constantly, your, your book would be getting bigger and bigger. I'd be coming in with a Bible that's this big, right? But it's been once and for all handed down to the saints. Connect that to Ephesians 2.20 and then show the difference between that and you and I being judged when we prophesy in, in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Yeah, Eric. Yeah, uh, and actually one other one too. That and maybe I'm getting this wrong, but at the end of Rev- uh, at the end of the book of Revelation, uh, yeah. Revelation 22 verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. Now, I, I, I think of this as the entire scripture, because Revelation ties in so much of the Old Testament and the New, and it is the final. Uh, I think everyone agrees this was the last written uh, yeah. revelation. So That's some right. people would say, well, this just refers to the book of Revelation. And I don't think so. I think it's a comprehensive, uh, you know, first of all, there's a blessing that we, it starts out with a blessing that right. that we, we are to, we are to uh, study and learn the book of Revelation. And and also anyone who takes away from it. So all of these churches who, who ignore the yeah. book of Revelation, but we can't add to it. So there are no more prophets in the, in the New Testament or Old Testament sense. It's a very good argument. Okay. I, I think you're exactly right. I, I, I do think in that Revelation 22, 18, that you do have, it obviously in, encapsulates the book of Revelation, but I think you're right because Revelation is the capstone. It really functions as the ending of the, the canon of Scripture itself. Um, it's very interesting, too, there, John refers to the book as a prophecy, just as he does in chapter 1. The importance of that is many people today think, well, who can understand it? It's apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature was a genre in the intertestamental period where you had a bunch of jokers who would just come up with a bunch of symbol- symbols, and then they would read into, you could read into the symbols whatever you wanted. That is not the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, when you have a symbol, John tells you what it is. He says the dragon is Satan, the lampstands are the churches. He does, and if he doesn't tell you, he alludes to the Old Testament passage, which does tell you. And so the genre is a prophecy. Why? Because John tells us he's the author. It's a prophecy. But you're absolutely right. It's the last of the book. It's the capstone. It cannot be added to. And so that's why we see that, yes, when the apostles and prophets are off the scene, we can't have any more revelation. Another passage you can add to that is 1 Corinthians 15.8, where Paul says, last of all, he appeared to me. Remember, he appeared, Christ in his resurrection, to all of the apostles, but then last of all, he appeared to me. So Paul is the last of the apostles. Remember, he was one who was untimely born. But in order to be an apostle, according to 1 Corinthians 9.1, you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. So follow the, follow the logic. The only way you can be an apostle is you have to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. But Paul's the last one to see Christ raised from the dead. Therefore, Paul's the last of the apostles. Well, if Paul's the last of the apostles and the prophets are under the authority of the apostles, well, then you can't have any more prophets because you don't have any more apostles. (laughs) Sorry, I was trying to get that all in. But does that make sense? Okay. (laughs) Very good. 
Okay, so that's another way of doing it. But Eric, very well done. Exactly, that's another argument. All of these things show that we don't have new revelation today. Well, um, Brian bet against me, and he's right. I wasn't going to get to Proverbs today, so you're right. That's all right. I love this. I love this. Um, yeah. Oh, yes, very good. Yeah, in fact, I had homework because I know someone said they liked homework. So thank you. I'll, let me just spend this time. I'm going to, because my homework is listed at the end of here. I was very optimistic. I'll come to all this. I got to read you my homework assignment here. Okay, here's my homework assignment. And then, like Christy said, just keep your um, handouts because what I'll do is we're going to talk about these different um, parallelisms that you find in Proverbs. It's going to help you become a better interpreter of it. Okay, so that's one of the issues with Proverbs is we're going to talk about its interpretation because people can be led astray because it's a little bit different uh, genre than you have in an epistle, okay? But here's the assignment. What I want you to do next time is read, if you will, Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. Okay, Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And there's three things I want you to do. When you read those seven verses, number one, answer the question, what are the main four purposes that you see listed in the first seven verses of the book of Proverbs. And by the way, uh, Dana Birkinshaw did a wonderful introduction to the book of Proverbs. You can listen to his materials. Excellent. Um, he, I would highly encourage you to do that before the next time we get together. What are the four main points? Yeah, four main, uh, the four main points that Solomon himself gives for the purpose of the book of Proverbs. Number two, what seems to be the difference intended, if there is any, between knowledge and wisdom. I want to wrestle with that. What's the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Why is wisdom so important to Solomon in the book of Proverbs? So the difference between knowledge and wisdom, let's wrestle with that. What do you think that may be? Number three, what seems to be Solomon's ultimate goal in teaching others wisdom? What's his ultimate goal? What what does he want to accomplish by teaching this wisdom? Okay, so those are some things that we'll wrestle with next time. But thanks. You know what? I so enjoy all of your comments, questions, and uh, this is just a highlight for me. And I know Bob loves this as well, our time to interact together. So, Oh, I'm sorry. Those were the th- I only wanted to give you three. Yeah. <laughs> the first one entails four things, though. That's what it is. Yeah, Nancy. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So what I want to do, I, I think it's going to be at least um, two, uh, probably maybe even three, uh, because there's a lot to fit in. But the first session, what I want to do is explain Babylon of the past, biblically how it came about. And what, what I'm going to show again is Babylon is real, it's literal, but it's also symbolic. And I'm going to trace it from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament, how it really is the rebellion against God's rule. And so what I want to do is then in the next session show what that looks like living in Babylon in the next session, basically go to Revelation and talk about um, from there the new ethics and the new religion of Babylon. And what I'm going to try to do is tie all that to Marxism to show that this is really this end time religion where the goal is to have all the people of the world unite. That's what Karl Marx wanted. Now, again, I'm not a prophet. Again, I don't know if it's the end-time religion, but it seems to be building that direction. And I'll I'll show that caveat. But I want to build um, from Genesis through the Old Testament how significant Babylon is, what it is, and why it's going to be rebuilt in the future. So that'll be next week. That'll be, yep, the sermon next week. Yep. Yep. And then, again, Bob is going to be going to, um, when he's done with Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, when I'm done with 2 Timothy, I'll be going to the book of Matthew. 
So that's where we're, we're going. So, yeah, thanks for the question. Well, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together and a profitable discussion. I do pray that you give us clarity. I pray for Bob as he preaches the word to us. Uh, be with him. Lord, give us ears to hear so that we may be not just hearers of the word but doers, that we would apply all of the words of Scripture to our lives, so that we would live lives that are pleasing to you as your holy people. We pray that you would enable us to persevere until the day you come through the clouds for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.